Amen. You can have a seat, and as you take your seat, would you open with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Tonight we are in chapter 27 of the Confession, and the topic of chapter 27 is the communion of saints. What is a synonym for communion? Anyone want to throw out another word that can be used for communion? Fellowship, yeah. Anyone know the Greek word from which both of those come? Koinonia, Koinonia that's right. So fellowship, communion, uh, they're, they're synonymous. They can be used interchangeably, and, and they both come from the word koinonia. Koinonia is a word in the Greek that means sharing or mutual life together, a sharing together, having something in common. Uh, and so tonight we're considering what all Christians have in common together and how that commonality works itself out in our relationship with one another. So we're talking about koinonia, fellowship, communion, a sharing with one another of what we possess in Christ. That's what fellowship is. And so to introduce the topic, we'll read the first several verses of 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you, so that our joy may be made complete. Just a number of uh, important things to point out there as we begin thinking about the topic of fellowship. First of all, there is obviously a vertical component to fellowship, isn't there? John is saying, we saw Jesus. We heard him. We touched him. We were with him. He was manifested among us. And then he says, and now we have fellowship with the Father through him. We have fellowship with Jesus. We have fellowship with the Father. There's a vertical component of fellowship, fellowship with Christ. But then he says, we're proclaiming this message to you. We're telling you about this Jesus who was manifested in the flesh, this Jesus that we saw and heard and touched. We're proclaiming him to you so that you too might have fellowship with him, which leads to you having fellowship with us. So the point is, our fellowship with one another hinges around this common fellowship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, by proclaiming this to you, in verse 4, he says, as we, as we write these things to you and tell you about these things, and as you enter into the fellowship that we have, Paul, uh, John says, not Paul, John says, our joy is made complete. And so there is a sense in which our joy as Christians depends not just on our vertical relationship with Christ, so that's obviously the ultimate source of it. But according to John, our joy in part depends upon other Christians joining in with us in this enjoyment of God through fellowship. And so what is the fellowship of believers? Well, it's first of all the fellowship that we have with Christ. And then it's secondly that fellowship bleeding over into our relationships with one another so that our own joy in Christ is increased and the joy of others is increased through that fellowship that we share. And so we're talking about the concept of fellowship tonight, the communion of saints. And it's, first of all, a communion with Christ. More specifically, it's a union with Christ. 
And then secondly, it is communion with one another. And so if you have an outline, then you'll notice on there that it's broken down into two major sections. First of all, our union with Christ, and then secondly, our union and communion with one another. And so we'll follow that order as we work through the confession. Beginning with that first point, communion is true, or union with Christ, sorry, is true of all believers. So if you look over at the confession, the very first sentence, we're told that union is what's true of all, all believers. It says, all saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith. All saints are united to Jesus Christ. So if you think for a moment, the, the confession is talking about communion with the, the communion of saints, but it's not beginning with the communion of saints. It's beginning with union with Christ. And, and the point that the confession is making, and, and more importantly, the point that the scriptures make, is that our communion with one another is an impossibility apart from our union with Christ as the foundational basis for it. So imagine for a second, someone asks you, uh, let's say an alien comes to visit planet Earth, and this alien observes that there are certain uh, relationships that take place on the Earth, and he's trying to make sense of all of these different relationships that he sees taking place on the Earth. And, and he doesn't know how to describe it, but he sees two children. We know that they're brothers and sisters. The alien doesn't know what a brother and a sister is. So he sees these two children living together in the same home, and he asks you, what is this thing that's happening here between these two children? What does it mean that these two children live together? And so you, you start to try to explain to this, uh, this alien what, what a brother and a sister is, are, what a brother and sister are. And so you begin to explain to him, and you say, well, you see, brothers and sisters, they live in the same home together. And, and brothers and sisters, they, they, they play together, they eat together, um, a lot of times they fight, they argue over toys because they, they like to share toys. Um, a lot of times they, they look alike, you know, they, they have similar features. They're, 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 they're in that kind of relationship with one another. Now imagine that you're the alien, you're trying to make sense of it. Does that answer your question? as to what a brother and a sister is. Why, why am I having problems with the verb conjugation of are? Uh, what the brother and sister are together. It, it doesn't explain it, does it? There's something missing in that explanation. The foundational basis for the relationship. What makes them brother and sister? And for that, we would have to explain to our friend, you see, what makes them brothers and sisters is that they have a common origin. They share a common identity as children of the same parents. And so if we're going to explain what a brother and a sister are, we can't just begin by talking about the relationship that they share. We have to go back even further and say they have the same parents. They, they have a common identity as children of the same parents. And the same is true for Christians. A lot of times when we think about fellowship among Christians, we, we think of activity, uh, the types of things we do, which is not a bad way to think about it because that's included in it, but it doesn't go back far enough. If someone asks you, what is fellowship between Christians? What is the communion of saints? You wouldn't, first of all, begin by saying, well, you see, the communion of saints is that, is, is that Christians come together for worship on Sundays. And the communion of, of saints is that Christians serve one another and love one another and, and all of the things that are true about communion. But you wouldn't begin there. You would begin by saying, well, you see, the communion of saints is based upon their common union with Christ. 
This is where it starts. This is the foundation of all the communion, all the fellowship that takes place in the church begins with a common union with Christ. So union with Christ, we, uh, if you were here for some of the Ephesians series, which has been a long time, so I would be proud and surprised if you remember, but we, uh, we did quite a bit of talking about union with Christ in the book of Ephesians and what it means to be united to him. And uh, on the one hand, and even in the confession, we've, we've spoken about this as well. On the one hand, it's representative. So what does it mean to be united to Christ? Well, it's the opposite of being united to who? Who are we originally united to? Adam, right? We we're originally united to Adam, meaning that our identity is in Adam. He represents us. And what that means is that Adam's sin represents us. Adam's guilt represents us. Adam's condemnation represents us. We are represented by Adam. We are in him. But when we are converted and joined to Christ, we become represented by him. And so his righteousness becomes our righteousness, and his life becomes our life, and his uh, merits before God, they become our merits. We're represented by a new person, Christ. And so to be in Christ means no longer represented by Adam, but to be represented by Jesus. Not only that, but to be in Christ also, it, it has to do with a vital union that takes place. There is a real, what's, what's often referred to as a mystical union. Have you all heard of a mystical union before? Anyone familiar with that? The mystical union between Christ and his bride? The idea is, is, uh, is simply that it's a union that is mystical in the sense that we can't really understand everything that happens. We can't even perceive it, but it's something that is really true that takes place by the Holy Spirit. We are really united to Christ in a vital way so that the life of Christ actually flows to us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. There is a mystical union that takes place between the believer and Christ, and that's what it is to be in him. What the scriptures say is that is true of every Christian. There, there are not varying levels of union with Christ, like those who are really united with Christ a lot, those who are mostly united to Christ, those who are barely united to Christ. Uh, there, there aren't varying degrees of union with Christ. You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. Those are the only two options. And if you are in Christ, then it means that you have this vital, uh, unbreakable union with him. And it means that you have all that that union implies and entails. So first of all, every Christian is united to Christ. It's true of every believer. Galatians 3, uh, verses 27 to 28, you can turn there with me if you would like. It's an important passage because it reminds us that there are not varying degrees of qualifications within the church of Christ. Uh, there is not those really, really important Christians and those less important Christians, those really valuable Christians or those less valuable Christians. There is only a Christian who is united to Christ. That is our identity. That's the identity that we all share. So in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Notice the all of you in verse 27. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. 
There's no longer a distinction in the kingdom of God when it comes to our quality of belonging. We are either his or we're not. We're either in Christ or we're not. And everyone who has put their faith in Christ is in him. You've clothed yourself with Christ, and you have all of the benefits that come through a vital union with the Savior, with the Son of God. In this union, then, the second point on the outline, it comes by the Spirit and by faith. So a number of places in the Scriptures that we could go to to show that we are united to Christ by the working of the Spirit. Uh, So how does someone go from being dead in their sins, according to Ephesians 2, to being made alive together with Christ? How does that happen? The Scriptures would say the Holy Spirit accomplishes it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. One Spirit has joined us to the one body of Christ. It is all the work of the Spirit, and he does so through the instrument of faith. So there is no way to be joined to Christ apart from Spirit-wrought faith, is the bottom line. The Holy Spirit joins us to Christ by granting us saving faith in Christ. And then thirdly, uh, or letter C on this first point of the outline, our union with Christ brings us into fellowship with, the, with the, uh, the benefits of belonging to Christ. And we'll read the second uh, half of the paragraph, or, sorry, second half of that second sentence, that's what I want to say, the second sentence of the first paragraph. And so we've just seen that all saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith. And in the second sentence, although this does not make them one person with him, they have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And so to be united to Christ means that we are brought into fellowship with everything that Christ has accomplished. Everything that he has done in his redemptive work, he has done for your eternal benefit. And the way that you enter into those benefits, the way that you experience all of the benefits of Christ's saving work is through your union with him by faith. Uh, So all of the graces that belong to Christ, what are the graces of Christ? What's that refer to? Well, the graces could be another way of, of just saying all of the favor, all of the benefits, all of the gifts that flow through the merits of Christ. So everything that Christ rightfully deserves as the true Son of God, he bestows on us. All of his graces are given to us through union with Christ. One of my favorite verses in the Scriptures, or favorite phrases in the Scriptures, is found in Ephesians 1, 6, where God is talking about, or Paul is talking about how God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to the adoption of sons. And then it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So our union with Christ means that God now freely bestows on us his grace. What does that mean? To freely bestow grace means to bestow grace without hindrance. Uh, to be unrestrained in the expression of his grace. So as long as we are in our sin, we are separated from the grace of Christ. But when we are united to Christ, it's like the floodgates of God's mercy open wide for us. And there's now nothing that restrains or keeps back the full expression of his infinite grace. So, so our union with Christ then is the basis for us receiving the limitless, boundless, abundant grace of God through him. Uh, We also share then, secondly, in the sufferings 
and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Romans 6 is a place to go for that, Romans 6, 3 to 7. It speaks about how we have been buried with Christ, we have died with Christ, but we've also been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. So when we're united to Jesus, the idea is that we die to the old person and we are raised up as a new person in Christ to live a new life by his grace. We are joined with him in his death. We are joined with him in his resurrection so that everything accomplished by his death and everything accomplished by his resurrection becomes true of us as those who are united to him. And then thirdly, our union with Christ brings us into fellowship with his glory. And that's found very clearly in Colossians 3, verse 4. You can turn there if you would like. If you still have your Bibles open to Galatians, it's only a couple books back. Colossians chapter 3, in verse 4, when Christ, actually I'll go back to verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So Anthony spoke Sunday from Mark on the glory of Christ that prefigures for us what's going to take place at the second coming of Christ. Uh, The transfiguration that that took place a couple thousand years ago, witnessed by Peter, James, and John, that is a picture of the glory that is going to be uh, manifested at the return of Christ when he comes again. And what Paul is saying in Colossians 3 is not that we're somehow going to be inherently glorious like Christ is, but the idea is that when Christ comes with all of his glory, part of that glory is going to be to gather to himself and put on display the glory of his grace in every single one of his children. And so we actually will be participants in his glory in the sense that we are an expression of it. His redeemed church is an expression of the glory of his grace. Uh, We could go to Ephesians 5 to, to see that the bride of Christ is a beautiful display of the glory and the beauty of the one who redeems us. And so the, the glory that we share with Christ is the glory that results from the redemption that he's accomplished for us that will be fully revealed at the return of, of Christ. So all of that then, that first section of the confession, is just dealing with the, the foundation. This is all the, the basis of our union and communion with one another. It's worth spending the 15 minutes or so that we have on that because that is the, the most important component of our fellowship with one another. So it's easy for us, uh, I think, to forget, on the one hand, the benefits of fellowship, but it's also easy for us to get discouraged in our fellowship with one another and, and feel like we're not experiencing fellowship the way that we wish we, we could, uh, and, and it's easy for us to get down and discouraged. And often when, when that happens, we, we look inward and we start to think about ourselves and uh, either what we're not doing to express fellowship and we feel guilty, or we think about what other people aren't doing toward us and we feel uh, betrayed or, or lonely. And so we often think about ourselves when we think of our lack of fellowship. But the place we ought to go is back to what is true, objectively, which is that we are in union with Christ. And and. Any lack of fellowship that we feel and experience now in no way negates or alters the foundational union that we have with Christ. And the only way we can keep our hearts from getting discouraged in the practical is by remembering what is objectively true. So, well, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep going through that, but the, the main point being that the best way to stir up a desire for fellowship and the best way to be content 
in the life of fellowship is to remember the foundation of that fellowship, which is union with the Lord Jesus. That is the unchanging basis for all of the fellowship and communion we share with one another. But the confession moves on from that now to talk about the communion and the union that we share with one another. So if you go back to paragraph one, the third sentence, after speaking about our union with Christ, it says, also being united to one another in love, they have communion or fellowship in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to discharge their public and private duties in an orderly way so as to bring about their mutual good, both in the inward or the spiritual and outward or the physical man. All right, so now as we're working out fellowship, it comes out of our union with Christ. And what is communion with one another or fellowship with one another? What does it look like? First of all, we see its basic expression is love. The basic expression of fellowship is love. Uh, So someone asks you, what does it look like to be in fellowship with other Christians? Well, most foundationally, it is that we share a common union with Christ. But then the first expression of it, the most basic expression of it on a horizontal level, is love. Uh, We see that in a number of places. Jesus says in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he goes on to say, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. The most basic command given to the church in regard to our relationship with one another is that we love one another, just as Christ has loved us. There's an interesting passage. I always have found it helpful in uh, Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there with me. Philippians chapter 2. Speaking about Paul's desire to send Timothy uh, to the Philippians, he's, as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he's imprisoned, Timothy is one of his helpers, and he talks about how he hopes in the future to send Timothy to visit them and to encourage them, and he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition." For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul is saying, I want to, my own heart, in some measure, the, the joy and the comfort of my own heart depend on knowing how you're doing. I am genuinely concerned for you. I, I want nothing more than to know that you're doing well in the Lord, Paul is saying. And as I look around, I don't see anybody else around me who has that kind of concern for you, that kind of love for you and genuine care for you as Timothy, my my true son in the faith. Timothy is of kindred spirit. He has the same uh, genuine interest in your welfare, Paul is saying. And so I'm sending him. And then he says, because he's not like the others that, that that I see around me who are only concerned for their own interests, he says, rather than the interests of Christ. So if you think about what Paul's saying there, he's saying Timothy is genuinely concerned for you, for your welfare, and that is an expression of his concern for the interests of Christ. In other words, what are the interests of Christ on the earth? What is Christ concerned about in the affairs of the world? At the very forefront of all of his concern for the world is his concern for the welfare of the church, is what Paul is saying. Jesus cares about his church. Uh, And we could argue he cares about his church more than he cares about anything else that takes place on the earth. 
He cares about his church. And Paul is saying Timothy shares that same kind of care and concern. And the same thing is true of of every believer. As we grow in maturity, part of that process of growing in maturity is that we see our love for Christ, our concern for the things of Christ, will create in us and will increase in us a genuine concern for the people of Christ. Uh, We can't be concerned for the interests of Christ without being, in some measure, genuinely concerned and interested in the good of the church. And so love is the basic expression of our union or our communion with one another. Christ is concerned for his bride, and the communion that we share with one another is an expression of that love and that concern. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14, we're spending a lot of time in the prison epistles. Colossians 12, uh, 3, 12 to 14 is another good demonstration of the centrality of love in the life of the fellowship of the church. He says in verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond everything else, put on love, because all of those other things that Paul talks about are not possible apart from love. Love is the perfect bond of unity, he says. It's what holds the church together. It's the glue that holds the church together in its fellowship with one another. And he makes clear that that's not always easy. Uh, Just what he explains here shows there are things that happen in the church that make it hard to have fellowship. Uh, By implying here, that you have to bear with one another. He's implying people are going to make it difficult sometimes for you to be around them, and so you have to bear with them. Uh, By forgiving each other, he's implying you're going to be hurt by other Christians. They're going to hurt you. They're going to sin against you, and you're going to have to forgive them. And in order to do that, he says, if anyone has a complaint against anyone, so so there's going to be instances in which you can legitimately complain uh, in the sense of you you have a genuine... um, accusation against another brother or a sister in the church. Things aren't always going to be easy, and what holds the church together in fellowship is this bond of love, the glue that holds the church together in its fellowship. I came across a quote this week, a little rhyme. Maybe you've heard it before. Don't take it too seriously, but it's helpful, uh, if nothing else, than gaining your attention again halfway through the talk. It says, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, Well, that's a different story. Again, don't take that too seriously because the reality is life together with the saints below actually is the closest picture we get of heaven, this side of heaven. Uh, And so there's a lot of joy and life and happiness that comes from our fellowship with one another. But it is at least accurate in the sense that it's hard. Uh, This side of heaven, life as a body of believers is difficult. It's a different story than what will take place in glory. And the only way to endure it and to pursue fellowship over the barriers of our own sin against one another and failures towards one another is to love each other the way that Christ has loved us. And so again, the most basic expression of communion, of fellowship, is love, the love of Christ. And this loving communion comes with both privileges and responsibilities. So this is letter B on the outline. It's privileges involve sharing in gifts and graces, first of all. So we, when we are in communion with other believers, first of all, there are privileges that we get to enjoy, the benefits that we get 
as a result of belonging to the body of Christ and having fellowship with his body. Uh, We get the gifts and the graces of other Christians around us. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 makes clear that every single Christian, each and every Christian, has been given certain gifts and graces by the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of those gifts and those graces is to build up the body, is for the common good of the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why has Christ given gifts to the church of all sorts, graces, abilities, opportunities? Why has he given those things to the church for the common good of the church? And so when we are joined to the body of Christ, we get the privilege of having our own lives enriched through the graces and the gifts of other believers. Uh, Our own faith is strengthened. We grow in grace because of the way that we rub shoulders with other Christians. Again, the Apostle Paul uh, is a great example of this. I am always encouraged when I read some of the, the phrases, some of the things Paul says about his own dependence on the fellowship that he has with other believers. Um, So Romans 1, Paul is saying that he longs to go to Rome to preach the gospel to them. And he says, one of the reasons I want to go and preach the gospel to you, in Romans 1 verse 12, is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is saying, I'm an apostle, Uh, I've been appointed by Christ to preach the gospel, and yet I need the encouragement that comes from your faith. Uh, Something similar is written of of, uh, Onesimus in the book of Philemon, where, uh, again, Onesimus is very likely a a brand new convert, at least a very recent convert, uh, who has been converted under Paul's ministry. And as Paul writes to, uh, to Philemon about Onesimus, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul is saying, it breaks my heart to send Onesimus to you, because I need him to minister to my own heart. Uh, So the Apostle Paul is saying he needs the fellowship of other believers. It's one of the benefits of belonging to the body of Christ is that we glean the grace and um, the influence of one another's walk with Christ, one another's faith and their gifts and graces. But there are also obligations as those who have communion with other Christians, has obligations fulfilling our duties. Um, So if you flip over to the, the confession, I didn't read it with regard to privileges, but I'll go ahead and read it now as we consider the obligations of our communion. The first part of paragraph two says, saints by their profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in carrying out other spiritual services which tend to their mutual edification. And so the point is, not only do we have the responsibility to benefit one from one another, but implied in that as well is our responsibility to one another. Uh, to use our own gifts and graces and abilities and opportunities for the enrichment of the lives of other believers. And the confession says this is to be done both publicly and privately. Uh, So publicly refers to when we are corporately gathered together, especially on the Lord's Day, we are to use whatever gifts or abilities God has given us for the building of the body in that context. So it might be 
uh, preaching or teaching or singing or playing an instrument uh, or welcoming people as they come in and greeting them with uh, a warmth and gentleness in Christ. It could be praying in the corporate prayer meeting, welcoming, again, uh, new people, attempting to, to reach out to those who come in who might feel uncomfortable being new and unfamiliar with what takes place here. There are all sorts of opportunities when the church is gathered together publicly or corporately for us to use our gifts and our graces to build up and strengthen the church. Uh, Most foundationally, most generally maybe, uh, we do that just by showing up for worship. So the the best way, the the most basic way that we can use um, our graces and our gifts for the building up of the church is by coming to worship. Uh, and singing, and being a part of the body of Christ, and listening to the word with attentiveness, and then uh, discussing that, and encouraging one another with that in the context of our worship. But then there's also the private expression of those gifts. So we do so publicly, we also do so privately, looking for opportunities in one-on-one conversation, visiting each other, spending time with one another, uh, looking for ways to to manually serve and, and help each other with practical needs, all kinds of opportunities in public and in private, for us to use our gifts and our graces to build up the body of Christ. We won't read it now, but Ephesians 4, verses 15 to 16 remind us that apart from the right functioning of every member of the body, the the church cannot reach the kind of maturity that it is intended to have. Uh, We cannot be as mature of a body as we ought to be apart from every member of the church striving to diligently use his or her graces and gifts and abilities and opportunities for the building up of the church. And then not only is it to happen privately and publicly, but it's also to be with regard to the inward and the outward man. Uh, In other words, our care for one another should be both spiritual and material, spiritual and physical. Uh, That's the next part of the confession. The next sentence there says they, they are also to relieve ease or assist one another in outward things according to their various abilities and necessities. According to the rule of the gospel, oh, that's the next part, so we'll stop there. They are also to relieve uh, one another in outward things according to their various abilities. And so not only do we seek to care for one another spiritually, we certainly do, but we also seek to care for one another materially, physically, uh, with various needs that we might have in addition to just the internal spiritual needs. Uh, There are a number of examples in the scriptures, the New Testament, with regard to God's concern and our concern, both for the body and the soul, uh, for the whole person. Every individual is both body and soul. God is concerned for both body and soul, and so should we. Uh, 3 John verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. John prays that the Believers reading this letter would be in good health, that their physical condition would be healthy. Uh, Obviously, God is sovereign over that. Uh, He doesn't always grant that request, but we should at least desire for one another that both physically and spiritually we prosper. And then 1 John chapter 3 says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. And so we should be concerned when we see our brothers or our sisters in need physically, materially. We should be concerned with our responsibility to help with those needs as we have opportunity. Uh, James 2 is another good reference for that. Uh, Not just saying uh, be warm and and be filled when someone is cold and and hungry, but actually meeting the need, uh, doing something to meet the need of our brothers or our sisters. 
Uh, So, clear enough then from the New Testament that our fellowship with one another involves a fellowship spiritually and all that is ours in Christ, but it also involves a fellowship materially uh, with all that we possess, our resources. And then the context of our communion is the next thing discussed here in the confession. The fourth sentence, according to the rule of the gospel, the saints are especially to exercise this communion in the relationships in which they stand, whether in families or churches. Furthermore, as God gives opportunity, this fellowship is to be extended to all the household of faith, to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So basically what this is saying is that our responsibility of fellowship works its way out in concentric circles. It is centered with what is closest to us, which is our family. Uh, it works out from there to the, to the local church that we're members of, just because that's the context in which we're uh, committed, especially to serving and loving one another. And then it expands even further to include all the saints. Any, any need that we see in the life of believers outside of our local church um, that we might have opportunity to meet, we have an obligation to make an effort to relieve the, the burdens and the needs of our brothers and sisters. Uh, the confession is not saying that we don't have an obligation toward unbelievers, but it's specifically focusing here on the idea of communion. We don't have communion with unbelievers. We only have communion with the saints, uh, and that communion involves material provision, uh, both to those in our family and church, as well as those outside of our church. All right, and then the last point is fairly straightforward. It's limitations. Communion with one another is not communism. And uh, that is, uh, I'm sure you've come across those sorts of arguments. Uh, You know, look at Acts chapter 2, look at Acts chapter 4. No one was considering that anything belonged to themselves, but it was all given for the common possession of the church. Therefore, that's what the church should be doing today. Uh, You shouldn't have a bank account. It should all just be given away, given to the church uh, communally so that everything is commonly possessed, so that there's no one lacking and that there's no need in the midst of the congregation. Um, there are some who would argue that, but the, it's interesting, even the, the next chapter in Acts, which is Acts chapter 5, right after talking about how uh, everything was of common possession, it then goes on to talk about Ananias and Sapphira, who unfortunately um, lied and lied to the Holy Spirit and were killed because of their deceit. But in that context, uh, actually turn there and we'll just finish with this this evening. It won't take too long to look at it. Um, in that context, it's interesting the way that uh, it's worded with regard to their possessions. So it's, it's being made clear here that their possessions were not commonly possessed by the church. Uh, it's not that inherently everything a Christian owns necessarily becomes possession of the church. We have the freedom to give according to our ability and desire, uh, but there's no command in the scriptures that everything be commonly possessed like a... Um, like a, like a communal living context. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, after Ananias has lied and, uh, and Sapphira, it says in verse 4, talking about the money. So here's the scenario, most of you know, but they sold the, mo- the land for a certain amount of money, and then they lied to the church and gave a certain amount and said, this is everything we earned from selling the land. So let's say they sold it for 15000 They came to the church and they said, we sold it for 10000 and we're giving everything that we made from it to the church. Uh, so that it's the common possession of the church. They lied. And, and so when, when they're questioned about it, when Ananias is questioned about it, he lies again, and he doubles down on it. And, uh, and Sapphira does the same. And so in verse 4 it says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Before you sold it, it was yours. After you sold it, it was yours. You weren't under any inherent obligation to give it all to the church. You were free to do with it as you wished, according to your conscience before God. So why did you lie about it, is the point. So just a basic argument could be made there that the New Testament, even right after talking about how everything was commonly shared, it goes on to say, but that doesn't have to be the case. That's A Christian is free to share generously as he's able um, but it's not inherently true that, that the church is commanded by God to have everything in common um, because we're all individual stewards of what's been entrusted to us. We all have the individual stewardship of making sure that we use our resources uh, as wisely as we can for our own needs and the needs of others and ultimately for the glory of Christ. So, the limitations of communion, it's not communism. That's the last point. And then just a couple applications there on the bottom, I think, are fairly straightforward. Really, they're there just if you would like to later come back and think about it and ask uh, questions of your own life and see where the Lord might be um, growing you and stretching you in your own fellowship with other Christians. So a couple applications. First of all, stir up a sense of fellowship by considering our common union with Christ. Uh, If you are struggling to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then spend real time thinking about what it is to be united to Jesus. And then think about your brothers and sisters and think they share that same bond with the same Savior uh, and allow the Holy Spirit through thinking on those things to cultivate in your heart a genuine love and desire for fellowship. And then secondly, consider how to use your gifts and graces to strengthen others both inwardly and outwardly. Uh, So take some time and think, what opportunities has God given me? What abilities, what graces, what, um, what context has he placed me in? in which I can both inwardly and outwardly be used to strengthen and build up the bride of Christ. And to do so primarily because I love him and because I love his bride. So just a couple things to think about as you take some time in prayer with the Lord and consider how you might grow in fellowship. Well, let's end with that. We'll pray and then we'll stand and sing together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, first of all, that you have shown us your grace by uniting us to your Son, and we thank you that in him you now freely bestow your grace on us uh, abundantly and without restraint. We thank you that uh, no longer are we condemned because we're separated from you and from your Son, but you have caused us to be born again, you've made us alive, you've joined us to Christ, and tonight we have the certainty of always being with him, with you, uh, because of your grace toward us by joining us unbreakably to your Son. Father, we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us as we consider that to also grow in our love for all of those who are united to Christ. Help us uh, to remember and, and to cultivate in our own hearts a sense of the union that we share with one another because of our union with Christ, and we pray that that would uh, be expressed uh, even more fully in our own lives as we seek to be faithful in the opportunities and gifts and graces that you've given us. We thank you that you love us, not because we first loved you, but because you first loved us, even when you knew that we were sinners unworthy of your love. We thank you that you sent Christ to redeem us. We pray that you would help us to love one another with that same kind of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.